Welcome to the Independent School Podcast. This is the place for senior school leaders to discover innovative ideas and actionable tips that are going to help to strengthen their school's income streams and secure its future. My name's Juliette Corbett and I'm a consultant, speaker and facilitator specialising in independent schools. So thanks for joining me today and let's get started on this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode all about leading change in independent schools. So this is one of our Spark episodes. During these episodes, I invite somebody from outside the independent school sector to join us and share their expertise and their experience in a field which can be really helpful for us within schools. And this time we're talking all about organisational change and how to lead and sustain successful organisational change within our schools. So I first got fascinated by this subject when I did my MBA. So I am thrilled to be joined today by Professor Julie Hodges from Durham University Business School. She's the one who introduced me to this subject. Now, Julie is a leading expert worldwide on change in organisations and particularly in the role and the impact that people play during transformations. So before joining Durham Business School, she worked as a business consultant for over 20 years. Julie's the author of numerous books about organisational change, and she's also published in a variety of international academic journals. I found a number of her books really helpful, and in particular, Sustaining Change in Organisations. I'm going to put a link to that and to her other books in the episode notes so you can check those out. Professor Hodges is the Principal Fellow of the Higher Education Academy. She's an Academic Fellow of the International Council of Management Consulting Institutes and a Senior Fellow of the Foundation for Management Education. She's also a member of the Editorial Board of the Management Consulting Journal. So we really are in very safe hands today as we explore how school leaders can lead and sustain change programmes. So when we talk about organisational change within a school setting, we're including all sorts of different things. So on the academic side, it might be a transition from A-levels to international baccalaureate or from being a single sex school to becoming co-educational or from changing the way in which you, you balance your numbers of day and boarding pupils. On the business model side of things, it can be to do with changing the ways that departments are structured in order to affect greater efficiency or cost savings. You could think about change in terms of embedding a culture of philanthropy within a school community. You could apply it to culture change in terms of the ethos and values of a school. There are all sorts of ways in which the conversation that I have with Professor Hodges is really relevant to independent schools. We cover all sorts of things in our conversation today, from the importance of involving people wherever possible in change, creating ownership for people in the change that which they are experiencing, seeing things from other people's perspectives and the fact that emotion can play a significant role in people's reaction to change in the workplace, the importance of defining why you want to change readiness for change, how to overcome resistance, a whole host of topics which can really help you to frame the various different types of change that you're trying to lead and sustain within your schools 
using best practice from within the academic research. So I invite you to join Julie and I as we dive into leading and sustaining change in independent schools. So hello, Julie, and thanks for joining us on the Independent School Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So you and I first met at Durham University when I was doing my MBA and you were teaching a fascinating class about change and sustaining change in organisations. And it was it suddenly unlocked so many things for me in understanding how things had gone right and how things had not gone quite so well in my previous roles. And I've certainly been using what we talked about during that course in almost all of my work since then. So I would be fascinated to hear about, just briefly, first of all, why you became fascinated in organisational change and what it was that, that piqued your interest back at the beginning. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So my fascination began many, many years ago when I did an MSc dissertation that looked at job satisfaction. And the out of the, the findings, there was some key points that came up about organizational change. So that took me in to do a PhD in the area of organizational change. So I looked at the impact of Um, change on levels of stress among middle managers in the public information sector. So there was that partly that way, but also a number of the jobs that I've had over the years when I've worked in business have focused on organizational transformation. So from there, both in terms of my work experience and my research and academic experience, the two have come together. And in particular, my the area that I'm most interested in is about people-centered change and about engaging people in change in organizations whenever it's feasible to do so. Yes, absolutely. B- before we dive into that in a bit more detail, sometimes topics like change and culture and so on can feel a little bit hazy for some people. I wonder if you could give us a, a simple kind of layperson's definition of what we mean when we talk about organizational change. Yes. So so change is about doing something different. It's about improving, it's about adjusting. But within that, there are different types of change. So there's the the type of change that most of us are familiar with, which is about planned change. So that is when there's an opportunity to look at perhaps the impact of external factors on organizations that drive internal change and looking at what needs to change in order to adapt, to adjust to these external factors. And that type of change is planned change, which means there's an opportunity to to look at what needs to change, how it needs to change, when it needs to change. It may involve coming up with a project plan with milestones and specific tasks, etc., and involving key stakeholders in it. On the other hand, there is emergent change, and that's change that is unexpected. It is not something that can be planned for. So if you think of the experience that we have all gone through since the global pandemic hit us, initially there was emergent change. So 
overnight, many people had to move from working within an office environment to working remotely. Now, there wasn't time to plan that. There wasn't time to sit and discuss or make decisions. Very much, it was very reactive in order to the emergent elements that were happening and the impact of the coronavirus. Yes. So did did we therefore see or then see as organisations were coping with that emergent change that some organisations were better placed than others, either because of their culture or their history of change? Some were better placed than others to cope with that? I, I mean, that's a good question. And, and actually, I think it varied. If you if you look at it from the perspective of of universities, universities have talked about moving and improve, increasing their online teaching for a number of years. And some have dabbled in, in producing MOOCs. But virtually overnight, universities moved to an online teaching environment. So, you know, you would think that it was probably the more technical advanced companies, the startup tech companies that might be better at doing that. But actually, I think in many universities, they did an incredible job at just coping with the impact of that emergent change. Yes, I think we saw that in the independent school sector as well. So I I remember speaking to quite a few people over the summer and they were reflecting on the schools which had already been doing some online learning delivery for a variety of reasons and had been trialing or had a full-blown kind of project on that before the pandemic hit were saying how grateful they felt and how lucky they felt they'd had a bit of a head start on some of that but I also felt that some of it wasn't always just the technology side it was whether or not the school's culture was open to change and open to to making fast decisions during that really quite tumultuous time back in the summer of 2020. Culture does have an impact on on how quickly and how ready an organisation is to change. Uh, and certainly that can help with, with regard to it. But, but I think that because it was, you know, the pandemic has resulted in, in emergent, unprecedented change, there wasn't an option in many organizations they, to, to survive and to continue doing what they were doing. They did have to make a very radical shift. Yes, absolutely. And you reflected at the beginning of our conversation about your fascination in the, the people-centered change and the role of involvement where possible, engaging stakeholders and something and things like that. And I've certainly noticed where change programs have been most successful has been where there's been an engagement of stakeholders, whether that's staff or other people within the community. Do you have any tips for us on engaging stakeholders? Because it can be quite a tricky area. Yeah, I think, and I'd give a caveat here, I think it's whenever feasible to do so. So I do recognize that sometimes situations where, where change has to happen, if there's new regulations or if it's, you know, emergent, unprecedented change like the pandemic, there's not time to engage all relevant stakeholders. But whenever feasible, it, it's absolutely vital. And, and what this means is, is actually giving people a chance to be involved in um, the decision making. And that means giving people the the, the space to, to really voice their opinions, um, their views, their ideas, their their fears even 
about what needs to change, how it will change, why it needs to change too. Often frontline staff have really excellent ideas about what needs to change, but they need to be able to be given that space to voice their ideas and their opinions. But importantly, those need to be listened to as well. And again, wherever it's uh, feasible to do so, it's about looking at how these ideas can be taken forward. It is about in terms of also involving stakeholders at all levels of an organization too. So dialogue is absolutely vital. Inclusivity is important when it comes to making decisions. So rather than change being imposed on people, it is about including them in the decisions about what will work best. Change rarely works when it when people are are told this is how it what will happen and when it will happen. It is about giving people that space to to really come up with their ideas, to share their views too about what can change and how it can change too. It's also really important in terms of um, in, engaging people because that can create ownership to the change and for change to be successfully implemented, it has to be owned, not necessarily by the people at the top of the organization, but very much by the people who will be responsible for changing their behaviors, changing their ways of working as well. I think in terms of engaging people, it's also about being transparent about what are the givens and what are the things, you know, so what can't change, what things must must change, but also in terms of where is there flexibility for there to be, you know, new ideas, new innovative approaches coming to the fore. Yes, absolutely. And I so I'm, you've written many really helpful books. I'm going to put the links to those in the episode notes for people to explore further. One of them in particular that I I remember within the Sustaining Change in Organisations book that you wrote, you talked about a hilltop model, the idea of seeing change from other people's perspectives. And change can feel really unsettling and therefore it can have, people can have an emotional response to change. So being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes or see the change from someone else's hilltop was a really useful reminder to to realise that all of us have a different appetite for change and embedded in that is, is a sense of our appetite for risk taking as well. And that it's not unusual to see a, an emotional as opposed to a logical response to change, especially if it feels like it's being imposed without involvement. So I suppose what you're talking about in terms of involving stakeholders wherever possible, and that caveat is incredibly important, helps to build that sense of understanding people's emotional response to change as well as their logical feelings about it. Yeah, that's vital. I mean, change is an emotional process and it can, if not well managed and well led, it can lead to uncertainty, anxiety, you know, it can increase stress levels as well. And that will occur when change is done to people rather than it being in a way that is done open, that involves communication, that involves inclusivity, that actually there's a chance for people to get involved in it as well. I mean, if you think about it, we're all used to change, aren't we? I mean, we go to the hairdressers, we change our hairstyle, we may change our fashion, etc. But we are making those decisions. And the difference being that in organisations, these decisions are often made from the top down and therefore change is imposed on people without taking into account the emotional impact and the emotional reactions that people will have towards that. 
because often, you know, change will involve people changing their behaviors, changing their ways of working. And that can create a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety if people feel perhaps that they don't have the the key capabilities, that's the skills, the knowledge and the experience in order to change their ways of working. Yes, and it is about that that self-efficacy, that kind of confidence that people have as well, isn't it, in, in, in having confidence in their own ability to make the change which is being, being asked of them. Definitely. And that's not just about training and development. It may be about coaching. It may be about mentoring. It may be about making sure that people have the support around them. It may be that they need the support of their manager as well to make changes. And the other key element is about actually it, it is that people can see their managers, their leaders role modeling the change that is expected and particularly role modeling any changes, behavioral changes. Yes, absolutely. And we know within culture change, certainly, that one of the the best ways to do it is for leadership to start to genuinely and authentically role model the behaviours that they're looking to to encourage in order to to demonstrate that it's not just being imposed from the top, but something that everybody's being invited to live in terms of the new behaviours that are being trying to be developed. Yeah. And also, I would say it's a really grand term that's often banded about, about culture change. You you can't change the culture of an entire organization, particularly when a lot of organizations want to do overnight. My perspective is it's about changing elements of the culture that will ultimately lead to an impact on the overall culture. So you may change the structure. You might change some of the processes. You might develop new capabilities, for example, and all of these elements are part of the culture. The challenge comes when organizations want an overall culture change and they want that to happen within a matter of months. And and, and that that doesn't happen. Culture is made up of different elements and each of these elements have to be be changed over a specific timeline. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm so actually quite relieved to hear you you say that. And obviously, I heard you say that in, in the MBA course that we did together. But it's, it's, it's actually quite reassuring to know that pe- when people say we want to make a culture change, and you start to unpick exactly what they're saying they want, often, you do have to, to rein in their ambitions quite, quite a bit in terms of, we're going to change certain systems, certain procedures, and that will slowly over time trigger elements of that culture to change slowly. But to hear you say that it's not possible for anyone, a consultant, a new head of a school or anybody to come in and say, right, we're going to change the culture overnight. No one says overnight, but you know, within a period of even just a year, it's quite difficult to see how you would make a wholesale change in that way. And, and if you think about it, the culture in a lot of schools is, is, is like the roots of a tree. They're really deeply embedded. So, so it takes time in terms of unscrabbling all of that. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And especially for development offices where they're dealing with an alumni community where their experience of the school actually stretches back 50, 60, 70 years. And so it's not just the sense that it's the culture change or the culture of the school as it is now, but you're also having to consider the culture as it has been over mm-hmm. that those previous decades and the previous generation as well. Indeed. And it's to be, I think it's really important to be clear on, on what is it that, uh, you know, when you're looking at changing elements of the culture, 
What is it that you want the future to be like? So what will people be saying? What will they be doing? What will be different? So to identify that and then look at, okay, where is it now? And what will help move towards that future culture? Yes, absolutely. And and for people who are listening who are familiar with the podcast, there's another episode in series two about culture change in the sense of trying to make your school become more strategic and embed strategic thinking more in your school. And in that episode, I used Edgar Schein's primary culture embedding mechanisms. And all of those are rooted in the way that you measure things, the way that you manage people, recruit people, the way you set budgets. And so a lot of this element of change is coming back to specific things within your procedures that have, have a really profound impact on people's behaviours and change, but only over a period of time rather than being immediate. Sure. And along with all of that, ta- these task elements, it's also when you're looking at moving to strategic thinking, what is it people need to change in terms of their behaviour as well? So what will you see and hear people doing differently, that means they are actually looking at things from a more strategic perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. And as we reflected before, the role of involvement and including people in some of these decisions where where that's possible, trust is a really fundamental foundation for all of this work, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And that that, you know, trust is such a, a fragile element in organization that it takes a long time to build up. But it can be broken very quickly, you know, broken if, for example, a manager is not honest or if promises are made that are not fulfilled. Uh, so, yes, it's about, I think, for, to get people to open up and contribute really effectively to, to change. It is about building up that trust so people feel that they can put forward their ideas. They can challenge existing ways of, of working um, and behaving within an organization, that it's a safe place. I think that's really important. People need that that safety in order to be able to to raise their voice and, and talk openly and honestly. Yes, absolutely. And and that inclusivity that you mentioned before, the fact that it is including as many people as possible, and the transparency as well that you mentioned, really critical for underpinning that trust as well as empathy, that that sense of seeing things from another person's hilltop and trying to understand how they're feeling and how they're reacting. And that that can be done partly by just a thought process, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and seeing how they're, they're feeling about it, but also opening up conversations where you invite people to share how they're feeling about an upcoming change or whether or not it's something that they feel confident that they're going to be able to to do and to change. Definitely. And and that involves entering what I call ZOOD, Z-O-U-D, the zone of uncomfortable debate. So it can be uncomfortable to say, you know, how do you feel about this rather than necessarily what do you think about this? But if, if change is seen as a, an emotional process, then actually it is about feelings. It is about understanding what what the impact of change may mean for people. Yes, I love that. The zone of uncomfortable debate that that really encapsulates some of those tricky conversations which often go along when you're talking to people about change. I, I think that helps in terms of probably reframing the concept that of people resisting change, because actually there's usually a reason why people resist change. And, and unless we see the world from people's hilltops 
or ask these questions about how they feel about how things are working in an organization, how they feel about the impact of change. It's very difficult to really get to grips with why people resist change. And often the reason we see people opposing change is one, because they have been doing a job for a long time and they may have ideas about what could be done differently, but nobody has asked them that. Or they may have some, you know, some views on how the change could perhaps be adapted and so on. So I think it's about reframing resistance and actually thinking what's causing somebody to to act or behave in this way. Yes, absolutely. And and helping them to own the change by giving a general sense of we need to do we need to achieve a certain big goal whether that's to do with costs or efficiency or whatever it might be that that's kind of the, the, the senior leadership have decided that's the general kind of direction that we need to head as, as a school and yet actually allowing people to own some of the details of how that's going to actually happen within their job role can help to overcome some of that resistance to change and I think this is this is one of the reasons why it can sometimes feel complex because each of these elements is all interconnected. So we've got the trust, we've got the involvement, the empathy, engaging people in a way that helps to overcome resistance to change. Do you have any models or almost like a checklist that people could use that that you find helpful when you're thinking about pulling all of these disparate elements together? I I think there's no one checklist. I have written about different elements in, in my book. I think in particular, it's about being cognizant about why there needs to be change, what needs to change and how it will change. So it's about looking at the context, the content and the process of change. It's about looking at readiness for change. So within, is the organization ready for change? And within that, are the employees ready for change? It's about looking at the the history of change within the organization and looking at what has been learned from previous change, what's gone well, what's not gone so well, and how can we build on these lessons learned that's really important. It, it is about, I think, communication is absolutely vital. And that's about communicating, you know, small things as well as the really big things. It's about looking at different modes of communication. So not just using email, too much change is done by email. So it's looking at different modes of communication that's looking at different messages and sometimes it's about communicating actually you you know we don't know the answers to this yet or we're still working on it because all of what's really important is to address some of the uncertainty and anxiety that often goes around change because ultimately with change and particularly something like a transformational change People often think the first thing they think about is what's in it for me, which translates as, will I still have a job at the end of it? So it's about looking at ways that can help, not necessarily completely get rid of anxiety and uncertainty, but can help at least alleviate some of that. So communication is a vital element of doing that. I think also there there is a need to be able to to monitor and evaluate change too. And that means being able to identify clearly what are the benefits of the change. So what will increase, what will decrease, what will improve as a result of the change too. And to show that as as the as a change progresses, what are some of the achievements that have been made? So what are some of the quick wins that are happening with the change itself that are really vital? And the the other element is to make sure that 
managers have the capabilities to manage change effectively because often they are the ones that have to implement the change and have to manage the people that are you, you know implementing that change as well and i would say that particularly at a middle management level that's a whole level that's often you know expected to do so much with change and yet don't often have the capabilities that are required so it's about being able to build the capabilities for change and also it's about making sure that there is the capacity for change because you know we've all suffered from change fatigue so it's about ensuring that people have the capacity for change and they're not suffering from change fatigue yes absolutely and and with that fantastic kind of list of things to be thinking about one of the things that is an obstacle, I think, to really well-managed change within independent schools that I see so frequently is the lack of time, which actually, uh, whether it be the head or a senior leader who's who's spearheading a particular project and which involves significant amounts of change, quite often they are doing it alongside 101 other things. And so taking the time to reflect and the time to really think out along these elements all the way from why are we making the change what what's the driving force all the way through the readiness for change the history of change how we're going to communicate it in a, a two way so it's a kind of a, a has a feedback mechanism to that communication and then as you say the continual evaluation of that to see how things are going and to course correct as appropriate one of the things that's a real challenge is as well as the management having the time to implement the change well, it is actually having someone who can plan this out and really look at it with a lot of detail and think about what is the the step-by-step mechanisms that we're going to use in order to bring people with us through this process of change, whatever that might be, the particular project you're working on. And I think that's where sometimes schools go into these things, not realising how much time and an energy as well it will take in terms of communicating really authentically with people. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And in terms of looking at, you know, heads of schools, etc., it's about having that proactive leadership of change. And that means having a a sense of purpose. So being having the clarity and a clear rationale for the change and making sure that that is communicated in a language that people throughout the school will understand too. It's also, I think, proactive leadership of change is about what I call sense building. So it, it is about, in a way, translating you know, what will be done, how it will be done, and the overall reason for it. I think leadership of change also involves there has to be ongoing commitment and sponsorship too. It's I've seen many um, managing directors and leaders who've come out at the beginning of a change and said, oh, we really support this. This is vital. And then they disappear. Yeah, For change to be successful, there has to be ongoing commitment and sponsorship from leaders. And what the leaders have to do is they have to encourage a collaborative approach. So that's much more of a shared approach to change across the organization. And as you rightly say, change involves energy and enthusiasm. So it's about building up resilience. And resilience is all about having the ability to bounce back when things go wrong. You know, change doesn't always go the way we want it. Inevitably, there's always more than one change happening in an organization at a time. Often there's several happening and they're at different stages too. So it is about having that resilience. It's, it's, it's absolutely vital. It's a key element ensuring that change is successful. 
Yes, that resilience to bounce back and also to reflect on what needs to change in terms of the, the course correction for that particular project. I know we were talking earlier on in this series about innovation, I and mean, it's a very similar sense of continual reflection on what's working, what needs to be slightly shifted and changed in order to keep that energy, that momentum going in a really positive way, but to recognise that not everything is going to go perfectly, brilliantly, wonderfully well the first time you try it. That inevitably when you're trying to innovate or you're trying to to create change, some things are going to go wrong. And hopefully you'll spot that early and you'll be able to take action to prevent it from getting worse. But having that resilience and the understanding that it's almost inevitable that that will happen at some point, And then to bounce back and reflect and understand how you need to kind of shift your approach going forwards is is the key to success, I think. Definitely. And I think learning from failure is really important as well. You know, when things don't go well, it is about learning from failure and and doing an analysis of what went well, what needs to be done differently next time. That's really important. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and sometimes independent schools have a, a little bit of a perfectionist culture in terms of really aiming high in terms of their ambitions, which is which is fantastic. But it does mean sometimes that ability to bounce back from failure is is a bit of a challenge sometimes. So, Julie, I'd like to thank you so much for your fantastic insights today. We, we've covered a whole host of topics from the essential roles that people play in change and so the importance of involving them and developing trust, developing empathy, that sense of inclusivity so there's a sense that everybody is involved as appropriate with change programmes. I love your idea of the zone. What was it? The zone of uncomfortable debate. Was that right? Good. Yes. Perfect. I love it. And that sense that, that that going into those conversations with confidence and having practiced that, the way of approaching difficult conversations is really important. And reframing resistance to change, I think, is, is also really important, especially for schools where we do often have staff who have been in their jobs for a very long time. And sometimes that resistance to change is just sort of brushed under the carpet as, oh, you know, we always see that resistance. Doesn't matter. Let's just push on ahead anyway. In actual fact, taking the time to understand the root of that resistance and reframing it in a more positive way can be really transformational in terms of the way that a school can can move ahead with certain change programmes. So thank you so much, Julie, for, for joining us. Julie's written so many fantastic books on this subject. I'm going to put some links to them within the episode notes. So if you're able to have a quick look, that's at www.consultjuliet.co.uk slash zero two six so this is episode 26 thank you so much julie for your time today and for joining us on the independent school podcast you're welcome it's been a pleasure talking with you so that's it for today and thanks for listening to the independent school podcast if you want to make sure that you don't miss out on future episodes you can sign up for my newsletter at www.consultjuliet.com .co.uk slash sign up. There you can also explore the various ways that I help independent schools to strengthen their income streams and secure their future. Fantastic. See you next time then.